Well, welcome to, uh, to Grace, everybody. Welcome this weekend. Welcome to everybody watching online. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, before I get rolling, I, I want to just hit again and reemphasize a lot of what Brad was saying. Communion, really big deal. And if you're a Christ follower, it's something Jesus specifically says that we're to do. So I really encourage you to put that on your calendar. Um, here at Grace, uh, because we're such a big church, it's sometimes it's, it's hard for us to all get into a room. Uh, so most of the time when we do communion, we do it in our life groups. Uh, but a couple times a year, we like to go through kind of the extra effort to try to be together and do that. So uh, the Easter season is one of those. So pick that Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, come to one of those communions. If you've never done communion here, uh, it's a lot like a worship concert. And so a lot of music and kind of focus. And then we practice a uh, an ancient form of communion in which we take the bread and the cup, and, uh, and then we also wash each other's feet, and we have a, a symbolic meal together, or some of the groups will meet and actually have a real meal together. So we actually uh, play out the whole upper room experience, the Last Supper experience, uh, because we believe that all of that has lots and lots of meaning, and so we go through that. So if you've never done it, It'll be maybe different. If you've never had communion, you won't know any different. But if you've grew up doing communion, it'll be different than what you're used to. But I promise you, it will be very meaningful. It'll be a very powerful time in your life. Uh, if you're kind of hesitant about all of that, you are welcome to come and watch it uh, if, you, if you want to do that and just uh, be a part of the evening, but just see it for the first time. Lots of folks do that. It's no big deal. But uh, make a point of that. And then Easter, of course, start inviting folks for Easter. Uh, if you consider Grace Church to be your home, then choose the most inconvenient time for you to go to Easter services and go to that one, okay? And let's make a, lots of space for our community. If you're bringing guests, you can go to whatever service you want. That's your ticket to sit wherever you want, whenever you want. Uh, so I encourage you to do that. And over Easter, we're actually going to be starting a new series. We're going to start it next weekend called Reversal. I'm real excited about it. Uh, and that reversal series is going to be in the tone of Assume I Know Nothing. So the series we did at the beginning of the year. So if you can think about like some of the kind of the rest of the Assume I Know Nothing series and the tone and the way that we talked and explained things, it's a great time for folks who uh, maybe don't have a good understanding of the Bible or don't have a church background uh, to, to connect uh, and, and to start kind of at the beginning when it comes to Easter and what that's all about. So be a part of that. I think it'll be a blast and uh, looking forward to, uh, to joining together and doing that, all right? So we're finishing up uh, five assumptions about God and why they are wrong. And uh, we've been, hopefully you've been reading the book. If you don't have a copy, you want one, you can get it out at the bookstore. If you're watching online, uh, you can get it at the Grace Church Bookstore online. Uh, so hopefully you're walking through this and then hopefully... Uh, you're meeting with your life groups. I know a bunch of us, hundreds and hundreds of us join life groups, and I hope that's been a great experience for you. I think you can probably see how it kind of intensifies and deepens uh, what happens on the weekends, and it really allows you to personalize that. So I hope you continue in your life group and make those a part of your life, and you've created good relationships there. But in that, you've been reading this, we've been talking in here having these conversations, and <clears throat> we've walked through uh, the first four assumptions and just talked about and said, is this, is this really what God wanted? Is this really what this is about? And we've said it's important because we want to have 
a right foundation. So we walk through the assumption that God uh, just wants me to try harder. It's kind of a knock it off, get your act together, put your back into it assumption. Uh, we walk through the assumption that God just wants me to go to church, show up, pay, pay your homage to me, and then take off. We walk through the assumption that God will never be happy with me. Like you might go to heaven by it's the, it's the skin of your teeth because I kind of have to let you in, that kind of a mindset. And then last week, we talked about the assumption that God's just waiting for me to mess up. And we, and we learned that the Christian life is not about not sinning. It's about knowing, following, filling my life with Jesus. So we pressed against all of these assumptions, and we've really leaned heavily into Matthew chapter 22, a guy, a Pharisee that they're calling the Bible, guy who had a bunch of assumptions about God, went to Jesus directly and said, tell me the one thing. What is the greatest commandment? What, what am I supposed to do? And Jesus said, here it is. He said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God. Love Jesus Christ, we would say. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, all your, all your soul, all your strength. And he says, this is Jesus' quote. He says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. You start here. This is the foundation for everything. He said, the second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Then he goes on, he says, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the whole Bible hangs on that. So we've just been saying, this is why these assumptions are so important. If we don't have the foundation of loving the Lord our God and loving Christ and knowing his heart and knowing his mind and understanding his character and really truly downloading all that, if we don't have that foundation, then everything else will get wacky later on. If we put that foundation in and really understand what it means to love Christ, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then the church makes sense, the Bible makes sense, my relationship with other people makes sense, uh, obeying Christ makes sense, holy living makes sense, giving financially makes sense. Like all those surface things make sense when they're rooted properly. If I put any of those in first and then try to add Jesus later on, it's going to get wacky. It's going get, to get out of tune. But if I start at that beginning with the first and the greatest, then, I, then I'll be locked in. So that's what we've been talking about. All those conversations are online on our website. You can get podcasts if you want. Uh, they're on the app. So if you want to go and kind of fill in the blanks on a specific one, you can do that. You can get the book still if you want. You join a life group. So you do that anytime. Anytime we want you to. So anytime you join a life group, you won't be interrupting them. It's a great time to pop in and, uh, and continue growing in those ways. Now this weekend, what I want to do is lay down the last assumption. It's kind of a broad assumption, a big one about how we view and interact with God. And uh, well, let's talk about it here. So this is the fifth assumption. The fifth assumption is this, that Jesus is just for kids. Jesus is just for kids. And Jesus is something that I kind of outgrow and move past in my life. Now, <clears throat> there's a reason that this assumption plays out in our lives in such a, a strong way, and it's because the predominant message that we get about Jesus in our culture is a kid's message or a shallow message. And this message shows up a lot in what I affectionately call Jesus junk, all right? So there's all kinds of Jesus stuff out there, and it kind of reinforces these messages. So here's some examples of Jesus junk. Uh, this is a Jesus coffee mug. 
all I need today is a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. That is a deep theological truth, one of the core doctrines of the church of Jesus Christ, right? And we would talk about that a lot. Like, I'm just going to, I just need a little bit of Jesus in my life and my day will go the way that I want it to go. Uh, here's another example of it. These are some of my favorites. These have actually led thousands of people to Jesus Christ, these messages of the gospel, right? Uh, so it's Jesus t-shirts, the bumper stickers, the, you know, the, the fish on the back of your car. I don't have one because I don't want you to realize I just cut you off. Um, <clears throat> so I don't want you to know that. Plus, I think it's funny when you flip me off and I know who you are. So, right, so it, it's a good thing. Uh, here's another one. Uh, this, this is one of my favorites. Jesus is my coach. There is so much right about this because most ancient Middle Eastern men were pale with blue eyes and blonde hair and loved baseball. So it's a very accurate illustration of Jesus, and that's what he does. He helps you keep your elbow up so you swing level, all right? Uh, this, is, this is one of my favorites, Testaments. You don't have to share Christ with anybody verbally. You can breathe the word of the Lord onto them. Pass the word, it says. Every pack includes a passage from the scriptures. Isn't that good to know? Powerful fresh breath and a powerful message of Jesus Christ. So if you want to please God with your breath, this is how to do it. Uh, this one is straight out of the pit of hell. <clears throat> Uh, anything that involves a cat is going to be tied to the devil. You need to know that. That's actually in the Hebrew, right? So you're going to have devotions in the company of a cat. It's, that's mind-blowing on so many levels. I need to quit talking about it. And, and then finally, these guys, you know, these guys have raised, I know, oh, I know. He's going to rip on VeggieTales, right? If he rips on Bob's tomato, I'm walking out of this church, right? See ya. So, so the, <laughs> right? So there's these guys singing tomatoes. Now, I don't hate VeggieTales. That's out on Twitter already, so just go ahead and ignore it. But, but I, don't, I don't hate VeggieTales. Here's my, here's my point. This is what happens. There's not anything necessarily wrong with these things except the cat one. That's evil, right? But all this stuff is, it, it's fine. It's whatever. Here, here's the problem. These things represent often the depth of our understanding about God. Like, it, it's fairly common that like, I know about Noah's Ark, and, and I know about Moses, and, and I, I know about Joshua and the battle of, of Jericho, and I know that David fought a giant pickle. And, and that, that is the, the depth of my understanding about God. It's a, it's a shallow or a childish understanding, then what happens is this actually becomes how we think about the Bible, we think about God. So we'll take all kinds of Bible verses, for instance, out of context, and, and we'll take it, we're about ready to play our arch rival in football, and so we'll say, through God, all things are possible. That, I, that just has nothing to do with football. I'm, 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 God doesn't really care if you win your high school football game or not right? I can do all things in the Lord. That has nothing to do with athletic endeavors, right? If it, what, what, whatever, God will give me the desires of my heart. You're not going to meet a girl that way. That's creepy, right? So it, what, but it, because this is the depth of our understanding about God, we interact with God that way, and this becomes the basis of our relationship with God, our understanding of Scripture, our interaction with each other, our interaction with the church, and it messes everything up, and it's really a childish interaction. I, I wrote about this in the book. I just wanted to read this to you because it capsulizes it 
Well, I said this, sadly, many children are taught to have simplistic faith that amounts to some version of God said it, I believe it, and that's good enough for me. Rarely are kids taught how to engage real issues or think critically about portions of the Bible that are hard to understand. No wonder the faith of young adults is so easily discounted and debunked once they leave home. Their experience and their interaction with Jesus can only have, uh, may only have consisted of shallow social under, uh, activities undertaken because of family pressure. Their faith has never been put to a real critical test. So when young adults find themselves in a situation where they actually have to act on what they claim to believe, their belief system is called into question and their faith collapses. This pattern is tied in part anyway to the portrayal of Jesus as someone who is just for kids. Too often we talk about Jesus in ways that are meant to appeal to children. Or we'll talk about Jesus only in feminine terms instead of holistically, the very best of femininity and the very best of masculinity. Just think about how we portray love in our culture. It's a love for mom or a love for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, or close friends or baby animals. The message of love is even portrayed as someone in a tie-dye shirt with flowers in their hair dancing in a field of daisies. Is that what John meant when he wrote God is love in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8? <clears throat> even when we make the connection between God and love, we rarely use adult terms. We think about Jesus as being more like a nanny than a gladiator. We think about him as a soft-spoken, kind-hearted, fairly spineless man, and not as an aggressive, self-sacrificing, rock-solid rescuer of the innocent and the oppressed. With so many childish and cartoonish images being presented about God, a fair conclusion would be that God is merely a childish notion that should be outgrown. Adults no longer need someone to tuck them in at night. They no longer need to fold their hands and squint their eyes and say, thank you for their ice cream. Since, since they're not afraid of the dark and can think for themselves, then of course it's logical for grown adults to view God in the past tense and to get busy solving their own problems, isn't it? Why would anyone rely on a soccer buddy God? When, when, what adult would want to follow a Jesus that cartoon vegetables sing about? It's, a, it's good to allow our thinking to mature, but sometimes we end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and it's rooted in this idea that, that my understanding of God stops. It's, it's never deeper than a cliche. It's never deeper than a Bible verse out of context. It's, it's never deeper than all I need is a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. And that will not hold up well in life because life requires more than that, right? I, I, when, when, when I bump up against difficult situations in my life, when relationships break down, when I am hurting to the depth of my soul, I don't need a giant cucumber to tell me about God. When, when I go off to school or off to life and people start asking real questions about God, they start asking questions and, and looking and saying, hey, <clears throat> if, if your God is a loving God, why does such evil things happen in the world? If your God's an all-powerful God, why doesn't He just wipe out ISIS? If your God loves everybody, knows the details of, of, of their life, why isn't he rescuing the children in war, war-torn Syria or feeding the hungry? If the Bible is the book of truth, how come it's not just one other ancient text? There's a bunch of them. If your Bible is so true, who wrote it? Where did it come from? How was it organized? How come the Catholics have a different Bible than the Protestants do? Who collected it? Who was in charge? What do you mean it was inspired by the Holy Spirit? All of a sudden, man, you get a few questions 
about philosophy and a few questions pushing back on your faith, and if your answer is God is bigger than the boogeyman, see? Now, listen, I, I'm a grown adult. I, I'm not afraid to go to bed at night. I, I'm not afraid to have a bad dream. I'm not afraid to, to cut against the grain of life. I'm confident in my own thoughts, probably too confident. I'm pretty sure that if the world functioned the way that I said it should function, everything would go well. Heidi has yet to learn this lesson, right? Almost 25 years, she still can't load the dishwasher correctly, right? I'm not scared to be in the house by myself. I got a 200-pound dog and a wife that can snap you like a twig. I feel fine, right? So what do I need God for? I'm not afraid of the boogeyman. I'm not afraid to be by myself, right? What do, what do I need God for? And so what happens is this. Many people will just discount God altogether, <clears throat> at least for a period in their life. It's, it's staggering, the statistics of kids who are raised in the church that leave the church for about a, at least a 10-year window, if not altogether. And they'll go into college, and they'll go into life, and they'll make huge, monumental, life-defining decisions, and they'll do that in a godless vacuum because they got pressed into a few questions. They don't have an answer. All they know is that Madam Blueberry said, don't shop a lot. And that's the depth of their faith, right? And so they're gone. Uh, many of us then, we, we, we'll come back to church, especially if, we, if we'll sit and watch church on the computer or, or show up here and, and get up and go to church on a Sunday morning. We won't deny God out loud, right, because we're not there. We'll just do it in a very pragmatic way. We'll, we'll just, <clears throat> when we think about life, we think about our ability to direct our lives, when I think about what, how do I live a healthy life, I think about exercise, eating right, and spirituality as I define it. When I think about the plans for my life, I look and say, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, God bless it. When I think about my investment of life, I think about investing my life in order to accomplish what I want to accomplish and be financially secure the way that I want to be financially secure. I never go to God's Word. I'm not seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to discover what I was preordained and created to do, the good works that are set out before me, I'm asking God to help me do what I want to do because I need coffee and I need some Jesus. And if I can pull those things together, I can make my life play the way I want it to. So we, we, won't, we won't discount God. We'll just discount God quietly. And we live that way, right? And it, it's tied back to this idea that, that I need God to a point in my life, and now I'm a grown adult, and, and I, now I do what I need to do, <clears throat> and I will pull in the aspects of God that are important to me, and other than that, I kind of got it handled, right? Because I have these images, and I have these assumptions, and this is what God is all about. Now, is that true? Is it accurate? Is that assumption right? Because if I put that in as a foundation for living, then I'm going to live a certain way. If I pull that assumption out and put in a different truth, a different definition of Christ, a different understanding of who He is, then, then what, what is that? 
if I'm going to love the Lord my God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, well, then I have to know and believe and trust and be excited about who the Lord my God is. And if he's a cartoon character or a cliche, I don't know about y'all, but I'm not in on that. So who is he? Now, it's fascinating. When Jesus was talking to us through the Bible, he, sa he, he says something interesting. He says, listen, guys, when you think of me, when you think of me, there's actually an image I want you to have in your mind. And, and I want you to focus on this image. I want you to go back to it consistently. I want you to remember it. And I want you to remember it and go back to it consistently until I return. I want you to, to practice something, and I want you to do it in remembrance of me. Because when you think of me, I don't want, you know, a cucumber and a tomato. I, I want this image drilled into your brain. Because if you understand this, and you get a hold of this, and you get the depth of this, it's going to cause you to love me yield to me, let me define and direct you and take you where I want to go. So I want you to go back again and again and again throughout the course of your life and dial in on this. And the image and the practice that God puts before us is communion. So communion, a lot of times we call it the Last Supper. The Last Supper was actually the first communion, right? So Jesus gathers together with his disciples. They're celebrating Passover, and they're going through this meal. They get together as a meal, and he starts to put in symbols and a practice that we still practice today. It's a very ancient thing. He says, there's certain things I want you to do. If you're a Christ follower, certain things I want you to do because it's going to cause you to remember me for who I actually am. So he takes the wine at the table and he pours it and they pass it around the drinks. So he says, this wine, this represents my shed blood. I want you to remember when you drink this, I want you to remember that I shed my blood for you, right? And you drink it. I'm a part of you now. And my blood is what cleanses your sin, because I am the Lamb of God, the atoning sacrifice, and my blood carries the sins of the world. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then he grabbed a piece of bread, and he broke it. And he said, I, I want you to break bread, and when you break this bread, I want you to do that because I want you to remember my broken body. I want you to remember, this is, I'm going to show you the full extent of my love when I go to the cross, and I want you to remember what I endured and what I went through and that I did it on purpose. I want you to remember that. And then he, he washed his disciples' feet. And when he washed his feet, he said, listen, he goes, I want you to, I want you to do this because I want you to remember that I, I gave you a bath, I cleansed you, I saved you, but I, I forgive your sins every day. You need me all the time, right? So I'm going to wash your feet and I want you to do that. I want you to remember that I, that I did that. And then we do it all in the context of a meal. And, and the, the meal for us represents a future hope, we call it. There's going to be a big wedding reception in heaven one day when we all get to heaven after the Lord returns called the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we have a meal and we talk about the hope of heaven. And Jesus says, I want you to remember. He doesn't want us to remember the acts of communion. He wants us to remember what they represent. I want you to remember my death. I want you to remember my suffering. I want you to remember the endurance I had on the cross. I want you to do those things, and I want you to do it until I come back. Because when you think of me and you have an image of me and you're deciding who you're going to follow and how you're going to follow them, I want you to remember this. Not a t-shirt, not a coffee mug, not a verse out of context, and certainly not a singing cucumber. Because there is 
unbelievable hope and power and help and clarity and remembering my suffering and death. Now, I want to talk to you for a minute about this. What did Jesus go through in order to give his life on the cross? What happened to him? Because when we think of Jesus, not a nanny, right? When we think, when we think of Jesus, not a study hall monitor, what, what, what context will we put Jesus in? Jesus is going to look more like a Navy SEAL. He's going to look more like a, a Marine or a soldier who jumps on a grenade and takes it for his comrades. He's going to look more like the firefighters going into the Twin Towers. Okay. Well, how do you know that, Jeff? Because I remember his death and I see what he did. So what did Jesus endure? The process to the cross starts in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Now remember, Jesus is a healthy guy. He's in his early 30s. He has worked with his body his whole life. He's a carpenter. So he has kind of that wiry strength. I remember my dad had that. My dad would get up and work with his hands every day. And when I was a teenager, I'd work out. I just work out, you know, mostly my chest and my quads. So I just work out, you know. And I remember thinking I'm, I'm so big and buff and strong, and my dad is like this old man. And no matter how much I worked out, my dad was always stronger than I was, right? I called it old man strength because I'd work out, and my dad would get up every day and work. So Jesus had that old man strength. Plus, don't forget that he's been traveling around the nation, walking around the nation for, for three years now. So he is strong in shape. Like CrossFitters have nothing on Jesus, right? He, he's got it handled. So this is a healthy guy in his physical prime. What did he endure? Starts in the garden. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 26 and Luke chapter 22, that in the garden, Jesus was so emotionally distraught and so, and so anxious about what he was going to face because he knew what was going to happen with the cross. He always did. So he knew what he was going to go into it. It affected him emotionally and mentally so strongly. The Bible says that as he was praying, he sweated blood. That's an actual physical condition that's caused by a deep, deep anxiety that raises your blood pressure so high that your blood vessels will burst, they'll get into your pores, and you will sweat blood. It comes from emotional or mental anguish and trauma. So it just the thought of what was going to happen to him took a healthy, strong, prime of his strength man and cause that to happen. Now, he's arrested after he's betrayed by Judas. He's then taken, he's walked two and a half miles to Pilate. By the way, he's beaten and mocked along the way by the temple guards. They punch him in the face and all kinds of things. He gets to Pilate. He's falsely accused. All this emotional trauma is going on. Pilate, in an effort to kind of pacify the Jews, has Jesus beaten. So, he's flogged by the Romans. It's, a, it's an unbelievable thing that happens when the Romans flog him. The Romans did this as a specialty. There were actually groups within the military that all they did was flog people because they wanted to beat you but not kill you. So they specialized in it. So someone who was flogged would have been taken to a stone or a tree stump, chained or, or, or roped around it, 
been stripped completely naked. And then what the Romans would do is they would beat you, but they would beat you from the neck down to about the top of your knees and in the, just the fleshy part of your body. And they used a whip. That whip had usually lead balls at the end of it that caused it when you whipped it, it would pick up speed. So those balls would hit your body, and then along the kind of the length of the leather ribbons, they would ingrain uh, a lot of times sheep bone or sometimes glass, so that when it hit your body, the glass or the bone would grab flesh, and then they would pull it. They wouldn't like pull it on over. They would pull it back and through so that it would strip the flesh off of a person. So by the time Jesus was done being flogged, his back would have been in ribbons, just flesh hanging, muscle, tendon, all exposed from his shoulders down through his hamstrings to the top of his knees. He would have had incredible blood loss. He would have started to become dehydrated and then put into shock. He's then turned over to the Romans. And what they do is a couple of things. They, they wrap a, a, a garment around him, a purple garment, to mock him as being king. But that garment had the effect of stopping the bleeding. Remember, they didn't want him to die. So they stopped the bleeding. Think about putting gauze on an open wound. So they stopped the bleeding. And then they formed the crown of thorns. Those thorns would have been two to four inches long. They took it. They shoved it on his head. As it went onto his head, you ever hit your head? So they shove it on his head, bleeding profusely. The thorns are scraping down his skull, destroying all the nerves around his head as it happens. So at this point, he is in agonizing pain. His body is in shock. Fiery, electric kind of feelings are going down his neck and his shoulders. Blood, he's being hit in the head. His beard is being pulled out. He's being spat upon. He's being mocked. Then he heads to Golgotha, to the place of crucifixion. Can't carry his own cross the whole way. They get Simon to do it. They, ta they take him up there. This cross, the Romans reuse the crosses. So this used cross is there. What they would do is they would lay it on the ground. This is a hand-hewed cross. They would throw Jesus on the ground or he would collapse. They take that garment and they rip it off of him. So they open up all of these wounds again. So the scabs, the blood, the pieces of skin and muscle come off with it. Now he's on the ground. He's got dirt. He's got pebbles in his back, on his, on his bones, grinding on his bones, right? They put him on the cross, on the ground, and they put nails, these would be seven to nine inch kind of, think of railroad ties, would be put into his hands. Now, the Greek word for hands means something that our English word does. So our Bibles say hands, but our Bibles are translated out of the Greek. So for the Greeks, the hand was the mid forearm to the fingertips. It was actually a measuring instrument. You would buy, like a, a horse would be so many hands tall. It's that idea, right? And so when the Bible says that they put nails in his hands, what, what it's actually referring to in the Greek, they would put it through his wrist. And they, they would do that because if they put it into his hand and then they put the cross up and his full body weight fell on his hand, it would rip right through his fingers. So they put it in his wrist so that when they put it up and his body weight came down, it would catch the bones at the top of his hands and keep him hanging on the cross. So they nail both of his hands down, and what they would do then is they'd flip the cross up. 
And when the cross went in, it would go into a hole and jolt. And, and they didn't nail his feet because when it went into the, the hole and jolted, it would dislocate his shoulders because the full body weight would fall onto those nails and his shoulders would dislocate. When your shoulders dislocate, your arms are about six inches longer. So between the damage, the missing muscle and tendon on his back and just his body weight, now his shoulders pull out of socket. Then they nail his feet. As he hangs there and they nail his feet then, what happens is this. When, 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 when you're hanging like this, your diaphragm doesn't work right. So Jesus can inhale, but in order to exhale, he has to push up to stretch out his diaphragm in order to exhale. So he has to push against that spike in his foot. And, and the, the spike is through the soft part of your foot. No bones are broken. So it's just grinding against the bone at the bottom of his ankle, the top of his foot holds him in place. Now that's a fascinating thing because Jesus speaks a few times on the cross and every time he speaks on the cross, he speaks something about love or forgiveness. So there's the thief on the cross, right? They're interacting. They're, one's making fun of him. One is saying, you got to be the son of God. And Jesus says, hey, you're going to be with me today in paradise. Jesus saves him, rescues him. That guy's in heaven right now. He also speaks to John. He says, listen, you take care of my mom. This is your son now. So he cares for his mom. And then he speaks forgiveness to all the people there, right? So he speaks forgiveness to that. He cries out to his father. But this is what's fascinating. When, when, in order to speak, you have to be able to exhale. So you can't talk and breathe in at the same time. When we breathe out, air goes over our vocal cords, we can talk. So in order for Jesus to speak, he has to push against that nail in his foot. He's not just like randomly talking. He's going through this excruciating pain to speak forgiveness, to speak love, to speak to his father, to forgive everyone who did this to him. The shock, the trauma of his body and the blood loss, what happens when you lose a bunch of blood is fluid starts to build up in your body. So fluid starts to fill his lungs, water, fluid starts to surround his heart. I was reading a, a medical description of this and what they said was this, Jesus died of one or two things. He either died of suffocation, fluid filled his lungs like pneumonia, and so he would have suffocated as he lost his strength to move his body and or, and this doctor said more probable, is that as that fluid build and the oxygen dropped, Jesus probably had a heart attack. And the, the doc said this, he said, there is a, a place of, it's a rare thing, but it happens, an extreme trauma, which I would say we're in, there's something called cardiac rupture. Your heart actually blows up because it's trying so hard to beat and is so constricted, and the body is done. Then the guards come, they pierce his side, and blood and water flowed. See? Right. Now, this was fascinating. Jesus says this in John chapter 10. It's really important. Remember, in the garden, he knows all this is going to happen. So he, this is not like a shock to him. He knows every detail more than we would ever know. So he says this in John chapter 10, verse 17. He said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, right? I lay down my life 
only take it up again. This is huge, ready? No one takes it from me, but I, I lay it down by my own court. Nobody takes it from me. So Jesus, Jesus is not caught up in some political system and got crushed in the gears of history. Jesus is not suicidal, right? The, the Navy SEAL who goes after the bad guy is not suicidal. The guy who jumps on the grenade to save his buddies is not suicidal. The firefighters going into the Twin Towers, they're not suicidal. They're laying down their lives for another. So Christ goes in. He, he lays down his life. He does this on purpose. Pilate thought he was in charge. The Jewish leaders thought they were in charge. Jesus was playing them all. He, he was accomplishing something. He says, I lay down my own life. Nobody takes from me by my own accord. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, I have the authority to lay it down. I can decide that I want to do this and the authority to take it up again. So I can, I can decide to lay it down and I have the authority, the power over death. I can raise, I am, I am the son of the Holy Spirit and the Father. I'm God. So I have, I, I can raise myself from the dead. I lay it down and I take it up again. And so Jesus suffers. He dies. Three days later, he roars back to life. Now, does any of that sound like a singing vegetable? Any, any of that sound like a you know, you should be nice to people like Jesus. Yeah. That, that, that sounds a lot more like a heroic, historic figure. It sounds like a Washington, a Lincoln, a, right? A Martin Luther King. It, it, it sounds like a Medal of Honor winner. It sounds like somebody we would build a statue out of and say, look, look at the Marines. Look what they did. It, it doesn't sound like a, a, a childish thing that's, I outgrow and it's unimportant in my life. And when Jesus, when he says, listen, guys, when you're following me, and you're trying to wrap your head around who I am and why I am and what I did and why I did it, remember this, and you will see the full extent of my love. You will see a definition of love. You, you will have an understanding because I endured the cross. I did it on purpose. By the way, we know from Scripture, he's got an out whenever he wants it. One word, the Bible says, 10,000 angels would come and rescue him. So he's got, he's like, Dad, I'm done. He, anytime he wants, he can quit. But he does not want to, and he decides not to, and he endured the cross to the end. That is so much different than a coffee mug saying. This is our Lord, our Savior. And he, when, you're, when you think about following me and giving your life to me and allowing me to define and direct you, 
Later on, the Apostle Paul says this. I love this passage. It's one of my favorites in the whole Bible. Philippians chapter 2. He, he talks about kind of these, this complete picture of Christ. So, so he says this in verse 6. He said, Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in his appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is the Lamb of God. So Jesus is the Lamb of God, the atoning sacrifice. We talked about a few weeks ago. That's who he is. And what Jesus is humble. And Jesus is a servant. And Jesus is obedient. And that is all completely legit. And, and he is the Lamb of God. He's led like a lamb to the slaughter. The Bible says, he, 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 go, he does not talk back. His meekness, his grace, his compassion, all on display. Absolutely who he is. And so you see that, right? You see that. It's absolutely true. And, and, and he, this is Jesus who cared about the widow. This is Jesus who, who healed the woman with the issue of blood. This is Jesus who said, suffer not the little children. Let, let the kids come over and hang out with me. Quit devaluing children. This is all Jesus, right? This is Jesus, the, the, the baby in the manger. That's Jesus. This is Jesus, the, the eight-year-old goes to the temple and gets a little lost, mom's freak out. That, that's all Jesus stuff. I'm going to feed the 5,000. I'm going to help the sick. I'm going to do all those kind of things. All that is Jesus, the Lamb of God on display. But the passage goes on, and Paul says this, because of that, therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place. Look at this. He exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That's fascinating. There is, there is the greatest name is the name of Christ. Fascinating. The, the most powerful name, the most historical name, the most significant name. It's not Washington. It's not Lincoln. It's not King. It, here is the greatest name. God gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. It's fascinating. The name of Jesus, every knee will, should bow. And then it goes on. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And it's fascinating. So every knee is going to bow, every knee, every angelic knee is going to bow to Jesus, every human knee is going to bow to Jesus, and every demonic knee is going to bow to Jesus. Every knee in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's fascinating. Every tongue will confess. Stalin is going to bow his name to Jesus and say, you are Lord. Hitler is going to bow his name to Jesus and say, you are Lord. Obama, Clinton, Bush, Reagan, Trump are going to bow their name to Jesus and say, you are Lord. Every atheist is going to bow their knee to Jesus and say, you are Lord. I confess it. I acknowledge it. You are, Buddha's going to do it. Muhammad's going to do it. Joseph Smith's going to do it. You are Lord. Later on, the Apostle John says, you know who Jesus is? He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of lords. You see, the Lion of Judah, the King of Israel, the King of earth, the power of God at display. 
He is a servant, he is humble, he is obedient, and he is victorious, and he is powerful, and he is all authority, and he is glorious, and he is majestic, and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The, the God who said, let the children come, is the same God who said, you worship that cow, I'm going to strike you dead to the nation of Israel. The God who said, you know what, let's make sure everybody has lunch, here's the feeding of 5,000, is the same God who said, walk around those walls, if they don't acknowledge me, I will drop them and you go and every living thing is to be killed. The God who looked at the, the woman with the issue of blood and said, you know what, I have sympathy for you, I want to heal you, I want to help you, it is, the, is the same God who parted the sea and said, Pharaoh, if you, if you go back on your word, you're gone, and literally obliterated a superpower with one fail swoop. It's the same God who raised Lazarus from the dead with a word, the, the, the same God who created all, the same God who Hebrews says holds our very breath in his hands. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the lion and the lamb. Now, if I am going to give my full-grown, hyper-independent, slightly arrogant life to somebody, well, now we're having a very different conversation. If, the, if Bob the tomato says you need to be nice, I'm like, whatever. You are delicious with ranch dressing on you. <laughs> but if the King of kings and Lord of lords says, listen, I invite you to join me. I invite you to represent me. I invite you to share in the power of my resurrection. I invite you to build my everlasting kingdom with me. I invite you to be a called out people, the church, to be identified with me. I invite you to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, suddenly, I have a different perspective on who I am. that that God and that king would give his life for me and then raise himself from the dead and wants to know and interact and give to me? It changes everything. When my understanding about God stops with cliches, I don't need that. Man, what's the big deal, really? But when my understanding of God is tied to his strength, his power, his purpose, his determination, his perseverance, when the lion of Judah roars in victory, now I want in on that action. That makes life make sense. That makes life, I need to know that. I need to know that if the Bible asks me to do something, I'm doing it for the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he knows it and will reward me for it. I need to know that if I'm going to trust my soul to something, I'm not going to trust my soul to a bumper sticker. But I trust my soul to the only one who can defeat death, who did it, has been there, done that. And that's going to show up. 
I'm going to live differently if I believe and trust and remember that. Guys, God does not call us to straighten up. (laughs) The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the name above every name, invites us to be a joint heir, a friend, a co-laborer in the building of his kingdom. I need to know that. Men, listen, I don't, I don't know how you're wired, but I, I am, when, when I grew up in church, what I was told was to, to sit still, be quiet, listen, take notes, stop goofing off, calm down. I was told to become my mom. And if I became my mom, I would be a good Christian. And ladies, I mean no offense to this. This is just the way a guy thinks. So I'm not trying to put you down. I'm just saying, I have no interest in becoming my mom. Zero. Love my mom. Don't want to be my mom. But I was told that's what it is. You become a nice little boy. Settle down. Straighten out. Get into a good, solid routine. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You cannot find that in the book. You know what the Bible says? I'll tell you what the Bible says. Here's what it says. The Bible says God is looking for violent men. Violent men will take hold of heaven, the Bible says. Isn't that fascinating? What does it mean? It doesn't mean aggressive or abusive or loud or obnoxious or talk radio. What it means is this, men who will love violently. Jesus loved violently with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind. Jesus loved. Jesus was undeterred. I'm a, I'm a man of God. I'm not affected by the culture around me. I define it. I'm not, I'm not affected by whatever pressures are in my home. I set the pace of my home. I'm violent. If we can't get, get our, our head around, our discipline around pornography, if it's invading my home, I lead strongly. You know what? Just turn them all off then. I live against the grain of a culture. If I'm a man of God and nobody even knows that, something is desperately wrong with my life. I don't value what you value. I don't live the way you live. I don't talk the way you talk. Why? Because I serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. My career, my, my hood ornament, my zip code, they don't define me. What do I care? I'm a soldier in the army of the living God. I'm not going to die and say, oh, look at him. He made middle management. It gives a rip about that. Look at him. He proclaimed and built the kingdom of God. He was completely engrossed and saturated in his identity in Jesus Christ. That was my dad. See? Violent men. Powerful men. Not sit and be polite. I have no interest in that. I can be polite whenever I need to be. It's called networking. It's easy. But to be different, to be eternal, to leave an echo, oh man. And ladies, listen, you you know what you're told most of the time growing up? You're, You're told to be quiet, nod your head politely, take care of yourself, help with the kids, have more sex with your husbands. It's not true. Sorry, fellas, I wish I could help you out, but it... 
I don't know, but that sounds patronizing to me. I would not want to be talked to that way, especially if I had a head on my shoulders. I, I, I have no respect for that. I don't want my daughter thinking that that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible says learn in submission at home. That's what that means? That's what that means? The women of God are, are, are the daughters of the living God who are also supposed to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what that boils down to. I don't buy it. You shouldn't either. Do you understand the power you have as the women of God? I was watching a show the other day on prohibition. Remember that in the 20s? We had the great idea to outlaw alcohol. It worked out really great. And you remember that? You know who got prohibition enacted? Women. 13 years later, you know who got it repealed? Women, right? You, you, you know who, you know who uh, led the charge to make abortion legal? Women. Do you know who leads the charge? Vast majority of people who are pushing to, to undo it? Women. Do you know who led the charge to, to repeal and to defeat slavery? Women did. Do you know who led the charge for human dignity, the voting rights and equal pay? Women did all that. You know who the most important voting block in North America is? Women. Do you know who the most singled, focused consumer group in the world is? Women. Do you know who the most influential person in most people's lives is? Women. You ever see a, a pro athlete go, hi, dad? You never see that. <laughs> Why? Because you are the daughters of God. I love the Old Testament. There's this description of motherhood, and, and the, the Bible describes motherhood as the lioness. I love it. You mess with my kid, I will rip your face off. And it, it's correct. You want to turn the tide of a home, a community, a nation? You do it all the time. Historically, it's the women. What does that have to do with be nice, settle down, nod your head? This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and if your God is, well, I have my coffee and a little bit of Jesus, I had devotions with my cat, I'm following the, what in the? And you pull that assumption and push it out. And all of a sudden, when I'm looking at the words of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, when I'm experiencing the life-changing power of the King of kings and the Lord of lords in my heart in the form of the Holy Spirit, when I look at the church of Jesus Christ and what she is and what she's meant to be, when I look at my masculinity, I, I won't find, well, my wife drug me to church this weekend. What? It changes everything. When the hero says, follow me, everything, because of who Christ actually is and what he has actually called us to, and we push out that false assumption and put in the truth, all right, that... I think what we should do is chew on this for a few minutes. And I'm going to pray and the band will come out and they'll
build some time. And I encourage you, stick around. Don't get up and leave it. I hate that. Just don't do it. Right? Spend a few minutes and be still with the Lord. And, and ask God these questions. It, if I follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords, why does my life look like everybody else's life? If, if, it, if the risen Savior is my Lord, why does my morality, my finances, my time, what? Could it be that there's a definition that's driving me that's false? And if I locked in who Christ actually would, who he actually is, would I move beyond spirituality and move beyond politeness and move beyond middle-class suburbs America and become a radical, passionate, fully bought in child of the king, right? Jesus, help us with this. Lord, I am so passionate about this. Ah, I love you and I worship you and I proclaim your majesty and your fame. I, I hate it when you're minimized, when you're discounted. And Lord, when I do it in my own life, I, I sin, I'm ashamed that I would interact with you that way. So God, help us. Help us on every level, on personal, private levels. Show us. Draw us to yourself in kindness. And just remember who you are and what you did and why you did. And, and God, just press that into us even in these still moments. Do that now, Jesus, in your name.